0: Around the world, the impact of climate change is accelerating. I mean, we're just seeing extraordinary things, such as three years ago the bushfires in Australia were by far the worst we've ever had. The bushfires at the moment, or wildfires as they call them in Canada, by far the worst they have ever had. And then last year we had floods in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland that were referred to as one-in-a-hundred-year floods. And we had three in 12 months Things are changing. The last week has been, or June, was recorded as the hottest June on record.
1: That's Australia's former Chief Scientist, Alan Finkel, being interviewed by ABC Shepparton's Nick Healy. Alan Finkel was in Shepparton on Wednesday night, July 12, to talk about climate change. He was at the Shepparton Art Museum where he delivered the annual Fairleigh Foundation La Trobe University Lecture. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. Now let's hear that interview between Nick Healy and Ellen Finkel. And after that, we'll have an interview between Nick Healy and John Pettigrew. John was an orchardist at Bunbather for a long time, but has now retired into Shepparton and has had a long-term interest in climate change and its impacts on water supply in the Goulburn Valley. Now we have Nick Healy talking with Ellen Finkel.
2: I spoke with Farmers for Climate Action Group uh, a little bit earlier and uh, I had a very interesting conversation with one of their members, John Pettigrew, who knows the area very well. He's an old director of SP South Mona. He's been a fruit grower. And how he characterised what's happening in the GV at the moment is a growing awareness of climate change, a better understanding of the impact it's going to have on the ag sector, on farming communities, but maybe not the speed of change that we need. He feels like there's a disconnect between what we understand and what we're doing. Would you agree? Well, there are two timeframes
0: that they actually have to worry about. There's the time frame of climate change making a difference to the length of the growing season, um... I believe a lot of stone fruit are grown here and they need chill days or chill hours and that's probably shortening already. And around the world, the impact of climate change is accelerating. I mean, we're just seeing extraordinary things such as three years ago the bushfires in Australia were by far the worst we've ever had the bushfires at the moment or wildfires as they call them in Canada by far the worst they have ever had and then last year we had floods in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland that were referred to as one in a hundred year floods and we had three in 12 months Things are changing. The last week has been, or June, was recorded as the hottest June on record. So there is this speed of climate change, which is typically fairly slow, but it seems to be accelerating, and that can have an impact on growing issues. But then there's the speed of the political response and the consumer response for the from the purchases of goods. We have to be concerned about what might be and uh, is already occurring changing expectations of the consumers in Europe. I know we don't sell a hell of a lot to Europe but it's part of the market and they set some of the trends and expectations and they're starting to put fairly strict impositions on their own farmers which they are necessarily going to be Putting on imports into Europe, and that kind of thing will have an impact um, in all the major markets. Exactly how fast that will happen, it's impossible to say, but because of the increasing climate change events, it seems that there's an increasing response around the world politically.
2: I saw a rather chilling headline talking about the hottest June where the headline basically read, yes, that was the hottest June and likely to be the coldest one you'll experience for the rest of your life, which kind of gives a sense of where we are going with that. Consumer behaviour is a really interesting angle on this because, as individuals, we often feel that you know there's only so much we can do. We've got to recycle, but we don't know where that recycling goes. You know, we've seen that there's been some you know argy regarding soft plastics. We don't necessarily trust the system, but we're very slow as individual consumers to change our buying behaviours in such a way that would allow business to change their manufacturing or growing or whatever they need to do to make some real change. You know, buying out of season has just become the default now so consumer
0: decisions exercised through their purchasing power that you were alluding to is probably the strongest thing that we as individuals can do of course you can do your recycling and it's the right thing to do and it has an issue you know it has an impact on local environment and, and uh, landfill and things like that but if you want to actually contribute to change in the system it's the signals that you send back to companies don't forget there's the single most important thing for a company that's in business and wants to be successful and survive is to make things that people want to buy they have to listen to their customers whether they're a giant company selling to other businesses or a retailer selling to individuals. And so the message gets back. Let me give you an example. There's a company that's only started two years ago in northern Sweden called H2 Green Steel. And they're a startup. And their business is to make steel without using metallurgical coal. No coal, no carbon, no carbon dioxide emissions whatsoever. So we won't go through the full details, but basically they would use hydroelectricity, which is green in northern Sweden and hydrogen made with that hydroelectricity the combination of the electricity and hydrogen can substitute for the coal and they can ultimately make green steel but it's they're the first ones to go to full scale there have been some prototypes so it's going to be very expensive they're a startup and they have raised more than five billion dollars in this single enterprise which is a staggering amount of money how have they done that because they've got forward orders, they've worked with customers. Who are their customers? BMW and Mercedes, car manufacturers, Electrolux and Mealy, appliance manufacturers. Because BMW and Mercedes, Electrolux and Mealy are listening to their individual purchasers, the regular citizens who are making car buying decisions, and not all of them, but some of them are willing to pay extra to be early adopters and to express their concern about emissions. And so some of them will be prepared to pay 86,000 euros instead of 80,000 euros for a luxury Mercedes, or 3,000 euros instead of 2,500 euros for a Miele dishwasher. That signals getting to those appliance makers, and they're looking for providers upstream to give them what they can use to provide a zero-emission steel car or a zero-emission steel appliance. So it's the end purchaser who's using purchasing power to send a signal all the way up through the manufacturing
2: chain. That is fascinating. It is good to know that actually, you know, behavioural change does impact on, on actual business change at the end of it. it Thinking farming communities, there's always a big push for renewable in areas, and it tends to butt against each other. There can be a great debate that renewables take away from arable land, you know, the two can't coexist. Usually when that debate comes up, so does nuclear energy. Never mind renewables, we need to focus on nuclear. Can that be produced in a time frame that will make a difference? Because that seems to be the big issue there. The the time frame and
0: social acceptance are the two big issues. Actually, there are three. The time frame, the cost and social acceptability. Um, So it's a mute issue at the moment in Australia because we have federal legislation that was brought in in 1998 under a Liberal government, Howard government, under pressure that bans any activities in nuclear energy. So there would have to be a new government elected with a mandate to do it. And so if you consider the time frame, it's going to be a few years till that happens. Then we're never going to build the giant nuclear power stations of the past. If we do build nuclear, they'll be the small modular reactors, the ones that are actually built in a factory. They're not small like, you know, you can pick them up in your hand. They're 300 tonnes on a big truck but they're done in a factory and so they've got the economies of mass production or modestly mass production but they don't they don't actually exist yet The, the one that is most advanced is by a company in america called new scale and they're the ones that have gotten through the or nearly gotten through the equivalent of the fda if you're bringing a drug onto the market you have to go through the FDA. If you're bringing a nuclear power station onto the market in America, you have to go through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They've gone through a seven-year licensing effort, and now they're more or less licensed, and they're hoping to have their first nuclear small modular reactors operating in 2029. Now, we're not going to do anything before they've done it, So, and then we'll have to watch it for a few years. Then we're going to have to say, okay, it's now 2033 or something like that. Let's go for it. We'll have to negotiate, get some investors. Then they're going to fight the regulatory system. Then they're going to find the local objectors. The objectors will take them to court. It's going to take at least 10 years. So I can't see, and even with the best will in the world, I can't see nuclear in Australia till after 2040. By that time, it'll be coming onto the market, which is... Pretty well, will be pretty well served by solar wind with batteries and transmission lines and digital operations. And they're not cheap. They're not ridiculously expensive. The small modular ones are much less expensive than the big ones, but they'll be more expensive than what I expect the price of renewable electricity will be at that time. So they'll struggle. On the other hand, the really attractive thing about nuclear is they've got a very small resource footprint. You referred to the land use... solar and wind it's more than that it's the mines that we need to uh, develop and expand for the lithium the manganese the nickel the cobalt and the graphite and for the uh, rare earth elements and the the silver that's used on solar panels there's a lot of mining involved copper will probably double in the next 15 years with the renewable energy revolution because you use a lot of copper in electric cars you lose a lot of copper in the generators in wind turbines so nuclear is a much, much smaller resource f- footprint. It uses a negligible amount of land, negligible amount of... Re- they don't use rare earths at all. They don't, use, they don't need batteries because they deliver on demand. Um, so from the pure... Uh, and they need uranium, but, you know, the nuclear... A kilogram of uranium has got the same energy as 10 million kilograms of fossil fuels. You know, nuclear fission is incredibly powerful. So the resource footprint of nuclear... Is tiny and they're very well behaved on an electricity system. They deliver on demand. They have an intrinsically AC characteristic, which is the kind of electricity system that we in all countries have. So, from a pure engineering point of view, it's hard to imagine anything better than nuclear. But the reality is, we don't have a social license. It's going to take a long time before we can actually, if we wanted to, get them, you know, into um, practice on the system. So I personally don't spend time dwelling on it. There are more immediate issues that we have to deal with.
1: Now it's Shepparton's John Pettigrew talking with ABC host Nick Hilly.
2: And Alan Finkel is going to be in Shep tonight. He's going to be doing a talk at the Shepparton Art Museum. Alan, of course, was Australia's chief scientist a couple of years ago. But beyond that, he's a neuroscientist, inventor, researcher, educator. He can run out of ways to describe him. He will be speaking on the topic of climate change in regional Victoria and looking at what it will mean for farming communities. It's a topic... John Pettigrew knows very well. John's been a fruit grower, a former director of SPC Ardmona, founding chair of the Environmental Farmers Network, and he's part of Farmers for Climate Action Group. John, good morning to you. Morning, Nick. It feels like in many conversations around farming and climate change, the, the focus is often on what farming is doing in terms of contributing to climate change. But the industry, by its nature, is of course going to be one of the first to be impacted by the changing of the of the climate.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now this is one of our our challenges that we always face. Uh, we we certainly certainly at the forefront of the uh, climate impacts. We've seen that in, region, in regional Victoria, particularly northern Victoria, uh, during the Millennium Drought, probably highlighted many of the issues that we'll be facing and are facing through. Uh, through climate change
2: what do you think some of the key areas that we should be I guess concentrating on more are specific to the GV
3: the golden Valley I think the opportunity is uh, renewable energy uh, certainly the way the way we uh, we operate our farming systems uh, all these things are changing Nick they're slowly changing uh, One could argue that we need to to uh, in, in, increase the rapid of you know, change but uh, uh, look many of the things are happening already but uh, I, I think renewable energy, renewable energy and the the way that we operate our farming systems.
2: John you mentioned that change is occurring but slowly and, and I do hear this a lot that we are not adapting quickly enough that we will be on the back foot.
3: Look I think so and this is what uh Alan think will be very interesting his, uh, his, his discussion this evening. Uh, we, locally, we've been trying to get Alan into the golden valley for for quite a few <laughs> years so so we' we're, we're excited really to have him here to uh, quiz him on his uh, his perceptions of what's happening here. but uh, no i uh, I think uh, we've known about it for quite a while, and uh, we are moving, but not quickly enough.
2: Renewable energy is a fascinating one to me because it often feels like the debate comes down to you either have arable farming land or you have space for renewable energy and uh, never, never the twain shall meet. And yet we have seen the two working well in some areas in Australia. Could that be functioning that way in the GV?
3: I certainly could. And, and, and it is that we have examples in the Golden Valley of solar farms with operating sheep, uh, sheep industries are uh, working in conjunction with them. Uh, but really, for the amount of land that's going to be taken up by solar farms, Nick, we're, we're really overreacting to the, the challenges of uh, uh, the supply of good, fertile land being, being limited. And this, uh, it really doesn't come into the equation at all.
2: John, when you say overreaction, do you worry there's still a bit of, if not deliberate misinformation, a bit of confusion around what I guess uh, us, you know, contemplating climate change and adapting for climate change will mean.
3: Look, I, I I think there is, but it's 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 really easy enough to point out, Nick, that climate change is is costing our our agricultural industries. On a daily basis here, whether whether you're a dairy farmer and you've had to adapt your your feeding systems uh, over the years, most of those most of those changes have added costs to the operations. Whether you're an orchardist and you've put in shade cloth mm. or your overhead sprinklers, it's all adding to your annual costs, your cost inputs into those industries. So, climate change. Climate change is costing agriculture on a, on a daily basis, I would argue. And now now, and into the future.
2: I've spoken to a few people who are looking at some of the more profound impacts of change. I've spoken to wine growers, for example, who are tearing up vines to plant things that they think will be adapted to the climate they're anticipating we'll have in a few years' time. I mean, uh, in some ways, especially when we talk about orchards, especially when we talk about fruit and veg, you need quite a long view on this. Well,
3: oh, particularly the wine industry, they... Uh, The wine industry probably understand changes to the climate better than any other industry. They they keep uh, uh, records, detailed records, Mm. going back every year, uh, and the the records that they have really do show the changes that are happening and how rapid those changes are taking place. And as you say, they're having to direct, adapt their operations perhaps more so than many other industries.
2: John, the Golden Valley it sounded like when you were commenting before we've got change coming I mean, we, we can't rest on our laurels but can we take a bit of good news away from the work that we're doing?
3: Yeah, I think we can. There's good examples of people changing over to renewable energy solar farms there's good good news of adaptation uh, the dairy industry's uh, uh, a good example of adaptation adapting adapting to a warming climate changing their uh, from from irrigated mm. pasture production through to uh, uh, on other other means but uh, horticulture also and i i have confidence we we've, we've got some good young operators in these industries that would really run rings around some of some of our us old stages and uh, Uh, So there's plenty of good news out there. It's just that we're probably not making enough of it.
2: Well, fingers crossed we'll hear more about it. John, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much. John Pettigrew, uh, as I said, he's a fruit grower in his past, a former director of SPC Ardmona. He founded, was the founding chair, I should say, of the Environmental Farmers Network and speaking there as a member of the Farmers for Climate Action Group.
1: Next we have a story from Amelia Hart, and it's on Renew Economy. The headline for the story is Fossil fuel giants gaslighting on emissions. Climate Council calls for greenwash bans. The story begins. The Climate Council has called on the federal government to ban corporate greenwashing, saying some of Australia's biggest polluters are gaslighting the public over their carbon reduction plans. In a submission to the Senate Inquiry, the Climate Council highlights the climate claims of 10 fossil fuel companies, whose collective emissions are equivalent to those of 2.8 million Australians. The submission notes that all of the companies, including Chevron, Woodside, Anglo-American and Santos, have committed to net zero by 2050 or sooner while also pursuing development of new or expanded fossil fuel projects. The IEA states that no new coal or gas projects can proceed if warming is to be limited to below 2 degrees. Let's be real, these big polluters are gaslighting Australians. Said Climate Council's Dr Jennifer Rainer. Stories like this sort of leave me at a loss for words. We have a government, a federal government, a Labour federal government, that says that it is climate conscious, that is doing things to combat the climate crisis. And yet, at the same time, in the same breath, it gives a nod to fossil fuel companies to open up gas fields, dig up and export coal, all in the face of the fact that the world's scientific bodies are saying there must not be any more fossil fuel projects anywhere for anybody. They must stop immediately. I'm just so confused. Well, I'm not confused. I know what's going on. It's all about money. It's all about the government living in the pockets of the rich fossil fuel companies. And they're afraid to act because they think they'll be tossed out of government, either by the power of the fossil fuel companies or simply the fact the people turning upon them. The latter, however, is unlikely because something like 70% or more of Australians are concerned about the climate crisis and they want the government to do something. However, It's really complex conversation because while they want the government to act, they really don't want to see their lifestyles change at all. That's a really confusing position. They want action on climate change, which means changing their lifestyle, living differently, but they don't want to do that. Yes, I am confused. But guess what? It's in our hands. And we can make a difference. We can do something. We can stop fossil fuel exploration. We can stop the digging up and the selling of fossil fuels. We can stop opening the gas fields. We can stop all that. We can do something. But we need a government that is bold, courageous and prepared to make tough decisions. It's a complex topic and they need to talk about it. They need to come out on the front foot and say, this is what we're going to do. We're concerned about the welfare of the world. We're concerned about the welfare of Australians. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to stop digging up the selling, the exporting of all fossil fuels, whether it be coal or gas. And we're going to invest heavily in developing renewable energy. That's what they should do, but I'll nearly bet. I'm not a gambling man, but I'll put a wager on the fact that they won't do it. Yes, the rant is over. Thanks for listening. Now we'll listen to Dr Genevieve Cowie from Doctors for the Environment, who was a guest at a recent event staged by the Melbourne-based Lighter Footprints. Dr Cowie spoke about the health impacts of household gas.
4: It's known as natural gas. That is gas industry spin, okay? It's methane. LPG is a mixture of propane and butane. The upshot of it all is basically that the risks from burning carbon inside our houses are increasingly recognised and that we now have much safer, healthier and more energy efficient ways of heating our homes. There is a tension here because we do need to tightly seal our homes for energy efficiency, but that comes at the detriment often of indoor air quality unless we take active measures to manage it. Safety of gas cooking and heating is not in fact compatible with a tightly sealed modern house. Burning gas gives you the products of combustion inside your house. All of these products of combustion can easily reach harmful levels inside your home. The risks to health and safety are being increasingly recognised, but they are unevenly distributed in our community. So those that are most at risk, children in particular, but also those in lower socioeconomic groups, they are much more at risk. Rangewoods over our cooktops They're often not used because they're noisy and they also may not actually be exhausting to the outside. What they may do is actually just take the air above your cooktop, remove some of the particulate matter from it and then blow it straight back in. An open fluid heater is one that takes that air from inside the room. The problem with that is that if that room is tightly sealed, there's nowhere for there to be the proper airflow to go in the correct direction particularly if you've put a rain hood on or an exhaust fan elsewhere in the house. Rather than going up the chimney, the exhaust gases can come through the draft diverter straight back into the room. Looking more specifically, nitrogen dioxide is the best studied of the indoor pollutants. It's a potent respiratory irritant. It directly causes airway constriction and sensitisation to allergens like dust mite or pollen. So for asthma, this is its clearest association, for gas cooking, there are similar levels of risk on childhood asthma as having a, a smoker in the house. So that is quite startling. So a child with current asthma in a house with a gas stove, 30% of the risk of them having asthma is from that stove, 13% of the community risk of childhood asthma is from gas stoves. PM 2.5, fine particulate matter, so that also irritates the airways, it aggravates asthma. It is involved in the development and exacerbation of chronic lung disease in adults. It's also involved with worsening heart disease and premature death in people with heart or lung disease. It also has systemic effects. Because the particles are so fine, they get breathed right into the deep parts of your lung and into the rest of your body so we're talking here about things like diabetes, dementia and poor pregnancy outcomes. Now formaldehyde is one of those volatile organic compounds. It's highly toxic and easily inhaled. It's present in small amounts in the products of combustion and is also very irritating to the eyes and skin and is well known for causing cancer. It's a known carcinogen. So these are all the things that come out of gas and burning it in your house. Now this is the most immediately dangerous, carbon monoxide. It's odourless and colourless, so you will not know it is there. As I said, it's often not suspected. The things to look out for, in particular, uh, if you're feeling sick, only when you're at home. So you can easily think that you've got gastro or flu or something like that. Headache, nausea, vomiting, muscle pain, weakness, shortness of breath. And then you start to get to more serious things like dizziness and confusion, chest pain and coma and death. There's the issue with negative air pressure and we know that draft-proofing our houses is important. It's really important for you to service your gas appliances at a minimum of every two years. by a licensed gas fitter with a type A license and a carbon monoxide meter, which they're all supposed to have. So, what to do, the interim safety measures until you can move on to safer and more efficient electric heating and cooking, preferably using renewable sources of energy. Improve the ventilation in your house. Use a range hood ducted to the outside. Open the kitchen window when you're cooking with gas. Use a plug-in electric stove. They're not that expensive. You could get one for about $100. Look for changes in operation of your gas appliance, particularly for changes in the colour or popping sounds coming from the flame. Sleep safely. Don't leave your gas heating on at night time or for extended periods of time. That increases the risk that you will never wake up. Consider a carbon monoxide alarm. There is no Australian standard, so if you are considering using one, make sure that they comply with the US or the European Union standard make sure it's installed correctly and remember that it's only a backup measure. It can never entirely eliminate the risk and never ever bring outdoor gas appliances indoors. Really, there's no good reason to be installing gas cooktops when we have such better alternatives.
1: And now we have a story from the Australian Broadcasting Commission and it's written by Tom Saunders. The headline for the story is Sydney's driest start to winter in 85 years is a blessing for snow season. Sydney has recorded its driest start to winter since 1938 but just a few hundred kilometres to the south Australia's major ski resorts have welcomed frequent snowfalls and a solid base to start the season. This is no random coincidence. If you want good snow in the Alps, hope for sunshine in Sydney. Indeed, the best snow season on record, 1981, was less than 20 millimetres short of being Sydney's driest recorded June to September period. This inverse relationship between coastal rain and snow on the Australian Alps is linked to the impacts of the Southern Annular Mode, SAM, a climate driver that measures latitudinal extent of westerly winds circumnavigating Antarctica. For most of this winter, SAM has been in a negative phase, a condition in which westerly winds expand north from the Southern Ocean over Southern Australia. While westerlies bring dry weather to the New South Wales coast, they're ideal for producing snow on the Alps. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your coming. It's been great to have you along. Now, please don't forget, you'll find links to all those stories I've mentioned in the show notes, along with several others. And please, as I said earlier, please follow this show, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And I'm keen to know what you think about this podcast, so don't hold back. Email me at r.mcleaner7 at icloud.com. As I said, don't hold back give me the truth. Do you like it? Don't you not? Please email me. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, please feel free to share it with your friends, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.